Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you are looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. So we are going to wrap up um, our third week of our prayer series this week. Um, And what we have kind of been through the last two weeks is just a reminder that prayer is not a religious obligation. It's not something that we check off on our Christian Jesus rules checklist. It is something is the way that we actually communicate and talk directly to God. It is the way for our soul, the created soul, to talk to the, the soul creator. And it is a way of us to have direct access to God through Christ. And so this week, um, or one more thing that we learned last week was that there is not a system or a process or a step-by-step way to pray correctly. And we kind of used the, the analogy earlier of, you know, we don't like have to fold our hands, step one. Step number two is we have to kneel down. Step number three is we close our eyes. And then we have to pray the J-O-Y, the Jesus, others, you order, you know, and then say the name of Jesus and then it's all done. And then we have effectively prayed correctly. Um, that is not the way that we go to someone in relationship and actually pray to our, our Heavenly Father. And so I was asked a question this week. Um, if there's no system to how we're supposed to pray, Jesus says, pray like this. How does that reconcile? And I was already talking. I was already um, felt impressed by the Lord to kind of deal with the Lord's prayer. Um, and so that's what we're going to do this week. And it was just kind of another confirmation for me that we're going in the right direction here. So what we're going to do this week is I'm going to break um, the scripture that we're about to read down, six, uh, Matthew 6, 6 through 13. I'm going to break it down in, the, in these eight little mini sections that we're going to kind of hit. I'm going to talk about and we're going to dig into a little bit of the Lord's Prayer. So Matthew 6, verses um, 6 through 13 in the New King James. And you'll recognize the first portion of this, 6 through 8, because we read it last week. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to the Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many, war- their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you, you ask Him. Right here, verse 9 is where what we know as believers and churchgoers and Christians as the Lord's Prayer begins. Ready? Um, in this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Okay, so point number one, one of uh, the, the smaller points are going to deal with these eight of them. In this manner, pray. What I find and what we, what we need to remember on the, some of the very first messages that we talked about here at Roots Community Church was that everything that's in the Bible, the way that Jesus said it, the way it was inspired and recorded is very specific. It's not nonchalant. It's not just thrown out there as in, oh, we kind of got the gist of the idea. It is very specific. When I, when I saw this, in this manner, therefore pray, I realized that uh, the, the first line of your notes is this. Jesus is not instructing his disciples, which would be us as believers too, 
two, that first blank is repeat. Jesus is not instructing his disciples to repeat these words. The next blank is to recite the order of the things he addresses, to recite the order of the things he addresses, or that third blank, quote his exact phrases. Jesus doesn't say, I want you to memorize this in this order, these words, and these have some um, key. It's like your words turn into a key. If you say these words in this order and you unlock something to be able to talk to, to the Lord. Yeah, in, in some ways, that's what Jesus is actually dealing with. And, and then we're going to talk about that in just a minute, actually. So great question. So what he's, what he's dealing with here is he's saying that um, I don't want you to repeat the same things over and over and over again. We read that in verses 6 through 8. And then he's saying, he's also saying in this manner. He's being very specific here by not saying, repeat this, and it's the, these are the magic words in the magic order for you to repeat and get right to the Father's heart. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he is giving them an overview, and he's communicating the heart of prayer and the posture of their heart when they come to their Father. That's why he says, in this manner. So I did a lot of study this week and dove into more than a half dozen of these commentators and theologians and people who are who are way more smarter than me, and most of them are from are, wrote commentary several hundred years ago on the Bible. And that next line of your notes is this. Nearly all the commentators, including those fluent in Greek and Hebrew, agree this is not a repetitive sequence of words Christians are supposed to quote. It is the manner, that next line is manner, it is the manner of how they should address their Heavenly Father. So what I want us to understand here is that we're going to go line by line through the Lord's Prayer, and it's kind of ironic that the, the Lord's Prayer is kind of one of the most memorized, quote-unquote, prayers and recited in different churches. And I, there's football teams who do it, you know, and they think, I'm praying here. I'm doing the right thing because I'm saying these exact words. It's not that these words are wrong. They're not wrong. They're the words of Jesus. But what he's communicating is that they're, he's trying to communicate something greater than just knock down these words and you prayed, man. That's what he's trying to communicate. There's a bigger thing here, and it's the posture of our heart, and we'll see that. Ready? Point number two. Our Father in heaven. Okay? Our Father in heaven. Notice Jesus did not say, he could have rightfully said, my Father, which is in heaven. He did not say my Father. He said our Father. He's talking to the disciples and the followers who are with him, and he's saying, look, He's, he's, he's giving a qualification here. He is my father, but when you become believers in me, when you become disciples of me, when you begin to follow me, when that happens, you become born again, and now he's not just, he's not just the creator. He is now your father as well. So he's opening up the door to welcome everybody in. The next line of our notes. It's important. This is important because Jesus is showing God is the creator the creator of all, and the specific heavenly father of all believers in Christ. And that next line in your notes, Jesus is showing us the open door we now have through him. The open door we now have through him to God. He's opening the door to say, 
He is not separated from you if you're a believer. He has now become your heavenly father as well. That's why it's very important that he used the words our father. Our father. Point number three, hallowed be your name. So next line in your notes there, the word hallowed here means sanctified, sanctified, and set apart from anything that is evil. Sanctified and set apart from anything that is evil. This statement is not us praying that his name would be great. We're not praying out there going, I hope God's name is great. Or sanctified is it is an acknowledgement that his name is already great it's an acknowledgement that his name is already great God is self-sufficient he has no need outside of himself he has a love and a want for us as his creation and as believers in Christ to be in a relationship with him but he does not need anything. He is, if he needed something, he would not be God. He is self-sufficient. So when we become, whether, you, whether we ever realize it or not, whether people become believers or not, God's name is already great. What's happening here is Jesus saying, when you pray and you're talking to your heavenly father, you're not fulfilling a religious obligation, you have this this um, relationship now with him because you're born again, you become under the realization that his name is already great. Before we ever knew it, before we ever admitted it, he was great. Number four, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there are two trains of thought on this phrase, and I think um, there's some, some debate between, you know, theologians and biblical scholars about which, some, which um, one of these is actually what Jesus is trying to say. I included both of them because I think they both apply, okay? The two trains of thought on this phrase, letter A on your notes. This is a reference when he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is a reference to the future, the future when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom on the earth. The second train of thought on this is that what this means is, this is a reference to the time when men will allow the eternal things of God to rule in their hearts, to rule in their hearts, and accomplish God's purpose in the earth. So depending on who you talk to, depending on what commentator you read, depending on which theologian you study, depending on which biblical scholar you, you listen to, parse the, the, the words in the original language or what have you, there's two trains of thought here. One is they argue that it's the future when Christ's kingdom is coming. And the other was that when it, someone becomes saved and the purposes of God arise in them and they start to take place throughout the earth. If you were to ask me a question, which one is it? I would say yes. It's both. Because I think, because regardless, either way, this statement shows an eager anticipation. This next line in your notes. This statement is an eager anticipation of the goodness of God that will come to all mankind. 
through the lives of God's obedient children and through the kingdom of God that will be established during the end times. Doesn't matter if it's sometime in the future, the second coming, or right now. What Jesus is saying here is there is a eager anticipation. We want the perfection that exists with God. We want the completeness that exists with Him and His Spirit and His and his environment to be present in our lives, and we want it to be present here on, the, on a fallen world. We want that, and we anticipate it coming in its fullness, whether that fullness comes through us becoming more close to him or when it happens in the future. Both of these are things we should be looking forward to because God's greatness, his perfection and completeness is the only thing that can solve all the answers of a broken, fallen world. Let his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Number five, give us this day our daily bread. Now, the Greek word here used for daily bread is not found anywhere else except in the words in the mouth of the disciples. Most scholars can't find this exact word pairing of words. They can't find this exact words or pairing of words anywhere else in even Greek literature. It is something that God and his disciples used very specifically to talk about our daily bread. And in the same way that there were two kind of trains of thoughts and two connotations of what daily bread or of what um, uh, your, your kingdom come, your will be done means, there's also two sides of the coin Forget what the, the word daily bread means here. Okay, ready? The first one, letter A. It's asking God to give us enough physical food and spiritual energy to make it through today. And when I say today, I mean this day. We're asking God to give us enough physical food, provide for us, give us enough spiritual energy from his, from, through his power of the Holy Spirit to make it through today. Okay? The second connotation is this. We're asking God to go ahead of us and prepare today, prepare today what we will need to make it through tomorrow. Most people during that time frame who were um, in the Jewish culture what they would do is they would eat certain times through day, and in their last meal of the day, which we would effectively call dinner, right? Or if you're in the South, supper. Um, <clears throat> as my grandma used to say, um, if you would have your, your dinner, your supper, your last meal of the day, what they would do is they would take a portion of their food, set it aside, and they would wrap it up however they deemed to be effective, and they would eat their last meal of the day, go to sleep, and wake up and have some provision from the day before ready for them so they could have energy to start the day. So in your notes, when most people in the Jewish culture during the, that time in history ate an evening meal, they saved, they saved some food for themselves to eat the next morning. So whether you take, the, take kind of the position that it's talking about give us today, everything that we need today, physical food and spiritual energy today, 
or if you take the position that we're asking God to go ahead of us and provide and start working on today what we're going to need tomorrow because he's already there tomorrow since he's all places already at the same time and knows what we need. We just read it in Matthew. He knows what we need before we ask. What he's saying is I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to make a provision for you while you're still enjoying what I've already provided for you today. There should be no stress in us for the provision that God needs to bring if we're following his word and obeying what he says to do. The point here is we as God's children are acknowledging our lack of power and ability to actually provide for ourselves. Now, in America, in our Western culture, the idea of, you think I can't provide for myself? Kind of goes back to that, you know, I'm going to pull myself up by the bootstraps. I am, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go out there and make something happen. That whole kind of idea of our, I'm going to provide for myself and for my family and all of that. And there is a precedent in Scripture that gives us a commandment as people to go work so that we can eat. But in our culture today, many people, I'll say actually probably most people, have enough food in their fridge or in a freezer or in a pantry somewhere that they're not worrying about what they're going to eat tomorrow or maybe the next day or maybe even a week from now. Now, I know that that's not everybody, but the vast majority of people in our, in our culture that lives a very abundance probably can figure out, even when you walk into the pantry or to the, open the fridge, it has all this food at it and goes, there's nothing to eat. You know what I mean? Like, I've been guilty of that myself, right? Like, you open it up and be like, there's nothing in here to eat. What I'm saying is there's nothing that I want to eat. But what we're, so this idea is kind of hard for our Western culture to wrap our head around because we have and we live in a land of abundance. But what, but even if we have three four, five, six, ten months, a year's worth of food stacked up somewhere, you cannot, and you feel like, man, I'm good for a year. You cannot guarantee that you're going to have the health assigned to you to be able to even cook or eat that food. You cannot guarantee that somebody's not going to walk in here, break down the door, take all your food and go. You cannot guarantee any of that. When we arrogantly think we are self-sufficient. We are only one decision or act away from realizing just how fragile we really are. Have you ever seen anybody who, or heard a story of someone who was on top of the world and they had all the money they wanted or they were, in, they were successful in business or entrepreneurship and then, and they were thinking, man, this is, I am, I am, it, I'm at the top of the heap, I am on the pinnacle of the mountain, and then somebody in their family or they themselves winds up getting sick, and all of a sudden the perspective changes. None of this matters anymore because as strong as they thought they were, when the stage four cancer diagnosis rolls in, all of a sudden it's like, I'm not as strong as I thought I was because there is a provision that has to be given to me. We are not in control. 
and what Jesus is communicating to the people that are in that time frame who are looking for their daily food literally every day. You can help me preach. That's fine. Um, who those looking for that daily food, that daily bread, that we need something tomorrow because we're out of the meat from the last animal that we were able to hunt so or the deer we hit with our truck right like um uh we need more and so god provide us a way to go and have that so we can do that now so that when we get to the point where you already are there is something there's a provision there number six and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors the word debts in this context is clearly a reference to sin. Clearly a reference to sin. All the scholars, all the theologians are almost 100% unanimous that this word debts here means sin. We are to acknowledge our sin and the need for God to forgive them. Forgive them. We have no way to work off the debt of sin on our own efforts through any form of self-effort. There is no penance we can pay. There is no, um, there's not a, a number of right things we can do to fill in the hole of the sins that we have committed. We are indebted with our sin. In a similar way to the story of the prodigal son, who ran back to his father, fell at his feet, and said, I, I, I squandered everything. Just let me come back as your servant. I find I, one of my favorite things about the story is that the father completely ignores everything he says. He's just happy his son is home. And the love for that child and the happiness for that son coming home and looking for forgiveness and being reconciled to his father outweighs the disappointment and the acts that are disobedient to the father that the son has committed. That level of forgiveness, that is what we need. It is also, um, so we are 100%, the next line on your notes, relying on the grace of, mercy, and goodness of God. We are 100% relying on the grace, mercy, and goodness of God. It is also implied here that we will grant to others the same forgiveness, the same forgiveness we have been granted from God. It is also implied here that we will grant to others the same forgiveness, the next line of your notes, we have been granted from God. I heard a very powerful statement this afternoon that I'm so glad that the Lord allowed me to remember right now, and it was this. God did not only die for your sins, to forgive your sins, he died to forgive the wrongs that were done to you. God did not just die, or God's forgiveness not only extends just to your wrongs, 
it extends to the wrongs that were done to you. And I don't know about you, but that levels the ground in a way that takes me off my high horse. When I want to stand up on my high horse and be like, I was done wrong. I need justice. Yes, you do. But in this context where he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We are releasing others from the wrongs they have committed against us and leaving their justice to the Lord. That is very difficult. Simple, but hard. Not complex, but insanely difficult to do. That's why one of the things Jesus is saying for us to ask the Lord to help us, forgive us, and allow us to forgive others. Number seven, and do not lead us into temptation. This word temptation can mean um, the potential desires of our flesh and also a time of trial from the Lord. So there are also two implications of this phrase as well. Ready? Number or letter A. We're asking God to not allow us to succumb to the temptations of our own flesh, our own flesh, or the enemy of God. Do not allow us to succumb to the temptations of our own flesh or the enemy of God. I grew up in the Bible Belt and um, down in the South. You know, Texas is the buckle of the belt. I was in Florida, so we were just part of like the, the, the loop in the back, you know. Um, and one of the things I heard in testimony service, you guys ever been in testimony service? You ever had one of those at a little church, you know, you ever been to? If you don't know what testimony service is, you, you got a little church and there's a mic up. Anybody want to come testify? And people come up and they talk about, no, sit down. I wasn't asking you to come testify. Um, <laughs> but he was, he was uh, uh, people would say, would stand there and they'd talk about, you know, the things that were going on in their life and how the Lord had come through with them. And eventually it always descend into like who had the worst story, right? Like, I don't know how it was for you, but for my church, it was like, you know, I was sick for a week. And the next person was like, I was sick for two weeks. The next person was, I was sick for a month, you know, and it was trying to be like the worst who had it off you know, more worse off than everybody else. But inevitably, somebody at testimony service would say, man, devil's really been tempting me. Devil's been throwing some stuff out there to tempt me, and I just need some strength to kind of push away from it. And what we do is we kind of assign the blame of the temptation and that desire to the devil. So let's correct that just for a second. The Bible says, that we sin when we are drawn away by our own lusts and desires. We are drawn away by the things that are in our flesh that we want to do. Now, the enemy may run a thought right across your head. He may create a scenario that you walk into where the thing that you have not submitted to God kind of gets activated a little bit and starts to tingle. because it, But ultimately, even though, yes, he is foul, yes, he is crazy, yes, he is um, sinister, and yes, he is evil, he may be creating an environment, but ultimately he's creating an environment to ignite the 
fleshly desire that's already in us. Yes, pray against him. Yes, cast him out. You've been given the power as a believer through the Holy Spirit that resides inside of you because God has all the power to tell that little, I will refrain from what I was about to say, but to tell that little thing to get out, kick him in the donkey, and then watch him rock, roll right around down the street, right? You have the power to do that because the Holy Spirit resides inside of you. But we need to stop assigning blame to the devil when it's actually our desire that's rising to the top. We have to die to us and kill that need of thing of what I want, what I think, what I want to do. I'm going to go for this. This is what my thing is. I'm going to go out and fill in the blank. Stop. Because that drive and desire and passion that our culture glorifies is actually something that can drive us in an opposite direction of where God is. And if we're not careful, we'll blame the enemy and let ourselves off the hook when we are the thing that needs to die. We have to set that straight. The second connotation, letter B on your notes. We're asking God, do not let us fall apart during times of testing that are allowed, allowed by God. One of the things that really cooked my noodle when I was in a hard time was I asked God to get me out of this. I was praying and asking, God, get me out of this hard time. And he said, no, I want you in the middle of it. And my, um, my denominational training was really uh, confused at that moment because I thought, I thought you wanted me happy and blessed, and prosperous, and everything to be, like, really good in my life. And now you're telling me you want me to be in this position? Yes, because there are some things that God can only teach us through pain. There are some things that God can only teach us through pain. Even Charlie agrees. Charlie's the dog. In both instances both A and B, both definitions of that phrase, we are instructed to ask God for strength to overcome the temptations of life and faithfully endure the testing of God. This is an acknowledgement that our strength, very small, and the God we serve is all-powerful. Our strength is nothing. His strength is eternal. Number eight, the last one. But deliver us from the evil one. This is a clear reference to Satan. Satan, that's the last line of your notes there. Why is it important that Jesus actually address the evil one, Satan, Lucifer, whatever the name you want to call him? Because there is a growing belief, even inside people, the people of God and the church of God, that there is no devil, there is no enemy. I'm here to tell you that repeatedly, and including in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus addresses him directly. We do have an enemy. He is the enemy of our Father. And since our Father cannot be hurt, He will do the next best thing He can and try to hurt His kids. 
if you hurt me, I might be able to deal with it. You hurt my son Kobe, it's over. Even probably in an unhealthy way that God still needs to fix something in me. Right, parents? Right? Like, we'll just, the earrings are coming off, the shoes are coming off, you know, it's the grease in the hair and the nails are coming off or whatever it is, you know. And we're going, we go about to throw down if you touch my son, right? You know what I mean? For all the women, because I don't got any of that, right? Like, so I kind of, sorry, went back to the hood there. Um, um, <laughs> we have to realize that we as believers have an enemy. There is a being working against the things of God and in turn against God's children. And let me address one little thing here that the enemy is very good at, and it's the idea of wielding fear. I don't know about you, but I am a chronic overthinker. It is something that I struggle with my entire life. I can sit in one spot the whole day and think and be exhausted and have done nothing but thought myself into such a lather and a frenzy that I could just pass out. And people look at me, my wife looked at me like, what did you do today? I thought a lot. Why are you so tired? I can't turn this thing off, man. And so what happens is, is that when I'm undisciplined and I'm kind of got my guard down a little bit and there's a thought that runs through my head of, I don't know, I'll, I'll use something like as a parent, you know, like I'm worried about something about my son or whatever. It will eventually turn into everybody knows I'm, everybody that I know is dead and I'm living under a bridge somewhere. Like, right? It like steamrolls. Like it, this fear goes to this fear, and then this fear goes, well, man, what if this happens? And then what if this happens? And oh my gosh, and then what if this happens? And it goes all the way down the line until I'm under the bridge. Right? There's no home. There's no food. There's, no, there's not hardly any clothes left. There's all of my family is gone. I'm complete. And, and if I'm not, and, and, and that might be funny to you, but for me, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of breathing heavy a little bit. And I know none of y'all have ever done that, right? Like let the fear kind of like work to another thing. But I get to the point where I go, man, what is going on here? And then I realize that our enemy is the author of confusion and fear. That scripture that says that perfect love casts out all fear. Since God is perfect and he is love, he's not the emotion that we attribute to love. He actually is love. When that perfect love the presence of that perfect God, perfect love descends on us. I don't know about you, but all those things I've created that are huge possibilities in my mind all of a sudden disappear. And if they don't disappear, they look this big in light of the eternal, powerful creator. <clears throat> As I went through um, the Lord's Prayer and started doing some of these um, and started reading this, I ran across something that I thought was very interesting. During this time, this is what I was talking about earlier that I was going to kind of address for you. During this time, most of the Jewish people in the culture had a standard prayer. It was an oral tradition passed down throughout hundreds of generations that they would pray a standard prayer. It was referred to as, I'm not going to even try to butcher the Hebrew in it because I'm real, because I'm like not white, like I'm like pasty white from the South, white, like marshmallow cream. I cannot speak Hebrew very well at all, right? So I'm not going to butcher it. But the translation of the title of the prayer was the 18. And it was 18, what they referred to as stokes, which are basically stanzas or sections and what we would kind of how we refer to um, stanzas in lines of poetry. 
It's not a perfect example, but it's kind of the gist of the idea, if you understand what I'm saying. So there's these lines that they would have to read, and there was 18 of them they had to memorize. And the people who were truly doing their religious duty as Jewish people would say the standard prayer, the 18, the 18 stanzas, the 18 lines, morning, noon, and night. And if you did not have time or the opportunity to pray the exact 18, you had to find a way to summarize the 18 and still get them in. All of the people that Jesus is talking to in this culture, all of these guys are, are, are the vast predominantly Jewish, right? All these people who are now his followers, who he's teaching, they're all Jewish. They all understand these standard prayers have to be prayed. I find it interesting that after someone, one of his disciples in Luke, this whole passage starts with a disciple turning to Jesus and saying, teach us to pray. When they already knew the 18, they already knew the tradition. There was something that he understood, the disciple understood, that by reciting these 18 stanzas over and over and over again, three times a day, and all for however many years he had done that up until that point, he still looked at Jesus and said, teach us how to pray. Because I believe he saw the difference between the repetition and the sincerity. After digging into the Lord's Prayer, it's very hard for me to go back and just recite it and think, this is what you're supposed to do to pray. What it does is it tells me the posture of my heart when I talk to my Heavenly Father needs to be one of humility. We're not repeating words and let's all say it. Repeat after me. Let's all say the same thing. You, you will not find anywhere else in Scripture that the church fathers, the disciples, the apostles, Paul, Peter, any of them, repeat this prayer ever again. If he meant for us to repeat this prayer and say there was some kind of system and some kind of order and some kind of number bullet points of things you got to hit when you talk to your father, they obviously would have done it again. Nobody does it again. What he's saying here is don't say these exact words. You can, but the condition of your heart is more important than checking off the boxes of everything we think we're supposed to do so that we can be right and do right. Our Father, door was open for all of us, for God Almighty to be our Father, who is in heaven, reigning over everything, hallowed, sanctified, great, and glorious is his name. Before I ever said it, he was already great. Let his kingdom come in the future and set all of this broken, fallen world right. Let his will be done in the hearts of men and in the actions of our life. And let the perfection that he authors be the thing that comes and fixes our broken world. Give us, your children, O oh God, what we need today, physically and spiritually. Give us, provide for what we are going to need tomorrow. 
Don't let that. Forgive us of our sins because we cannot do anything on our own and allow us to extend that forgiveness to other people. Don't lead us into areas where we will be succumbed to the temptation that's in our heart to do the things that are fleshly. And don't let us fall apart when you test us because you're trying to teach us something and build something in us that we can't do on ourselves. Deliver us from evil and deliver us from the evil one, your enemy. We want you to reign over him. Do you understand that that right there is an that is a heart? He is communicating a posture, a way for us to communicate to him that is not these checkmark boxes, but it's more about how we're approaching him, how we realize where he is and where we are, where he realize, where we begin to acknowledge his greatness and our utter dependence on him. That is what he's communicating to us as his followers in the Lord's Prayer. I want to be very careful to not point specific fingers at denominations or belief systems and go, you're wrong, bro. What you're doing is you're doing the thing the wrong way. What I want to do is to say, look at the heart that is in his word. And let us as Christ followers, disciples of Christ, have a heart that doesn't say, I'm going to do the right thing, man, and you better bless me. But it says, no, God. I am nothing without you. I know what kind of evil garbage is inside of me. And I need your strength to fix it because I can't do it on my own. That's the posture of how Jesus is instructing us to come to our Heavenly Father. Isn't it great that he said our Heavenly Father? He didn't divide himself from us. He didn't segregate himself from us. He said, our Father, let's all walk in and talk to our dad. This is the posture we need for prayer. I'm going to ask you to do one thing that I'm honestly a little nervous to ask you to do. I'm not nervous to ask you because I think you're incapable of doing it. But I know that if you will ask the Lord what I'm going to ask you to ask him, he will answer. <clears throat> At the bottom of your paper, there's a scripture got a little title that says homework how do we know that our heart is in that position that is described in the Lord's Prayer how do we know that we know it two ways number one we know it by comparing our heart attitudes affections thoughts and feelings against scripture it's very clear in his word how we're supposed to be 
The other way is to pray and ask him through the power of the Holy Spirit to show us something about ourselves. David, King David, was called the man after God's own heart, right? By God. Not by somebody on the outside. He was like, oh, that guy kind of reminds me. No, no, no. God addressed him as that one is the man after my own heart. Psalms 139, the last two scriptures, here's what they say, verse 23 and 24. David is talking to God. He's praying to God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. And lead me along the path of everlasting life. I'm going to ask anybody in this room and whoever hears this in whatever format they hear it in the future, I'm going to ask you to consider doing one thing this week, just every day this week. Get in a point, quiet moment with the Lord, and say, I want to make sure my heart, the posture and the attitude of me towards you, God, is correct. I want to make sure that I'm free of debris, that I'm pure. So I'm asking you, God, the same way David asked you, I'm asking you to search me. Find all the blind spots, all the little crevices where I've tucked things in, the little wrinkles in the fabric of my life. Find those areas and expose them to me. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. It's a rough one. Because you're asking him to poke the thing that triggers you. Point out anything in me that offends you. And lead me along the path of everlasting life. If we're really worried about our roots, Roots Community Church, if we're really worried about the foundation of our life with God, if we are really trying to be true disciples and not just congregants, not just converts, but disciples who are following Christ, if that's what we are after, that I am encouraging you and I'm submitting to you, ask God every day this week these words. With sincerity and courage and bravery, to hear the truth about you from his perspective.